0: to pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for um, your word, and uh, Lord, again, after last week, and uh, just growing more acquainted with the Holy Spirit, um, I just ask that tonight you'd help us to position our hearts to um, better make a way for you to to rest with us and in us and on us Lord that um, we might in fact um, know the experience of being fully dependent on you and allowing you to fully come and dwell with us like you intend we love you Lord Amen Amen so we won't uh, be here next week because it's Thanksgiving Um, if you're in town and you don't have anywhere to go for thanksgiving um let let us know or someone know and um, just to make sure you've got a place to go so anyway, next week we'll be off, and then um I think the following Thursday is the last one of the semester, so we won't meet um, when you guys have finals for students, so I figure you got enough going on um so last week, for those of you um I didn't. We didn't record it. Like I said, I got in trouble today for that. But um, we talked. Uh, I talked about the Holy Spirit and um, just like trying to give a little bit of a different perspective on who He is as a part of the Godhead and being just as powerful and mighty and holy and awesome as God in the Old Testament, and yet being willing to come and like literally. Um, indwell us, live with us, in us, um, and, the, and the implications that has for our lives. And um, so I'm going to just for a second before I start. We really think that, um, that God wants to do this in our midst again. And um, I've mentioned a few times that a few years ago, this whole Holy Spirit thing was new for a lot of us. Um, it was really kind of foreign. Um, the only thing we knew about it was that you know people' pray in tongues and fall down, and we didn't know if it was real and we didn't know what it was. but there was also things in the Bible that we were like, "Man, I feel like there's something in there to chase after and so we started chasing after this thing and one by one and and one by one over the course of a very short amount of time, and right in the church setting, God started like meeting us, and people that had never known about the Holy Spirit, or you know, known what it was about, or they started, you know, meeting God this way, and we had an extremely powerful time for like two, three years, yeah, three years, where you know, we were watching people that had lifelong depression, and all of a sudden the Power of God would like come and rest on this person, and, and different things would happen. For some, they would cry; some people would shake crazy. I mean, some people they did fall over, and yet God was there protecting them, and they would get up, and there was no more depression. And this was a lifelong, um, medically diagnosed thing that they would be healed of, and so there was the emotional side, what you might call deliverance. There was the physical side where. From 2008 through the end of 2009, I mean, we saw like over 100 people get healed of different things, both in the church and in the community. Um, crazy stuff that, um, you know, you read about in the Bible and you really hope that you get to be a part of. But then, honestly, when it was happening, it was a really difficult time for us as a church because there's a lot of nasty stuff going on as well, um, people in the community handing out letters about uh, leaders and um, physical threats of violence and stuff. And, and then the other side of it was there's all these amazing things going on and you're questioning, is this real? It was so crazy that you're like, is this, is this real? You know, And um, we, we think very highly of critically examining every claim in God because we think it's all real or available. Not that we think it's all real. There is some stuff that's manufactured, there's some stuff that's fake, and there's some stuff that just didn't happen. But we also think that if we really examine things, we're going to find a lot of stuff in God has happened and does happen still. And so we were examining all this stuff, but I remember praying for people, and there's a story of this guy in the parking lot. Pastor Tuttle and I were sitting outside. There was supposed to be a service. It was canceled. He and I were just hanging out here talking, and some dude comes up, On crutches, he'd broken his leg the day before, had a spiral fracture, couldn't put any weight on it. We start to pray for him, and he's like, my leg's getting better, I can feel my leg. And he starts walking on it, he pulls the cast off, he gets rid of the crutches, and he walks out of the parking lot with no pain. You know. And I'm sitting there, and we're praying for him, and I'm having a hard time, like, is this even real? Because it's so, in the true sense of the word, phenomenal, that your brain is having a hard time grasping that it's real. And yet when you, you look back on these things and you go, no, this was God throughout the course, this entire period. I mean, lives were completely changed. Physical bodies were physically changed. I remember another one praying for a lady who had a, a she a runner, a marathoner. She, uh, some sort of ligament or tendon in her knee was gone while we were praying for her she felt it grow out and a girl who had her hand underneath felt the thing move like a worm going across her knee while the thing was being healed and it was like this stuff is freaky but it it has to be god you know and so you're in the middle of it and you're trying to evaluate it and be honest about what's happening there's a lot of things i prayed for and i prayed for a lady um for a long time she she passed away um you know, and so there's a, there's a lot of things that we prayed for that didn't happen. My, my three grandparents in this period, this, this exact period where I we watched. I prayed for a lady once in Ironwood. Um, me and Dan Grilly actually prayed for a lady in Ironwood who had four tumors. Um, that had They were on an MRI. So she had four tumors, um, I think one on each side of her neck and one under each of her arms. We prayed for her. She went back and had another MRI, and three of the four tumors were completely gone. The other one had shrunk too, like, the size of a pea. And so it was, like, medically um, cataloged, recorded that that this had happened. And so you're in the middle of it, and you're, like, you're trying to evaluate this is incredible, and yet your own faith is still building. And then all of a sudden it just kind of ends. You know, it just it became less and less and less. It was happening less and less, and... Fewer fewer and fewer people were coming up like, hey, I want to get prayed for to get free to this, or fewer and fewer people were saying, I need physical healing, and all of a sudden it was like, we're not seeing it consistently anymore. And yet, we believe that God said that would just be the first wave of what he was going to do. So we're anticipating that this is coming again, and over the last year, talking with different leaders, they believe that it's like we feel like it's right around the corner, it's right around the corner. And so we took on a period of prayer and fasting. God, if it's right around the corner, I don't want to be saying tomorrow for the next 20 years. That's not, you know, whatever we need to do, if, if anything, make us ready to receive of this this time so that we're not so surprised. And so a lot of what we've set about doing since it kind of, I don't know if ended is the right word because... Um, but the, the same powerful experiences that we were having them then haven't been the same. And so since then, we've, as leaders, set ourselves to pre- prepare as many of us as possible for when God comes and does this again, so that this time it doesn't end. You know, the, the whole, we talk about revivals around the earth, and there's all these historical revivals. Well, the longest of them might last five years. I don't really want to be a part of that, to be honest with you. Um, It was cool the first time when it lasted three years, but there's such grief that comes with the end that I'd rather wait longer for something that will endure until Jesus comes back. So kind of what we have decided to set ourselves to is let's prepare ourselves and our hearts and the people To sustain something that when God comes and visits us again, we can carry it and steward it until he comes back. That It's not going to be a three-year or a five-year thing, and then it's over, and we're left going, man, remember the glory years. But something that we get to be a part of as long as we're around. So, I want to talk about um, the man upon whom the Spirit falls. And that's a quote that I took, so when I say the man, I mean the person, but... um, That's a quote from an old writing um, that really affected me. Um, So I want to talk about the person upon whom the Spirit falls, and I want to talk about five uh, false doctrines that I believe inhibit the um, ability of the Holy Spirit to come and fully rest upon us. So... um, False doctrine, number one, um, intellectual assent is sufficient to bring the fullness of salvation. Um, What do I mean by that? Uh, There's a kind of a belief that if you just like say yes to the right things and say no to the right things and believe the right things that you're good to go and... um, while I believe that belief and faith is the first step, I also believe that there is supposed to be a true transaction at a heart level. So what do I mean by that? I think that intellectual assent only inhibits the ability for us to truly repent. And when I say truly repent, the ability to truly repent, I'm casting that in a very positive light because that's how I view it. Um... I didn't always view it that way, but I, I do now. Um, so, true repentance is what happens in us when we're not just looking to get out of trouble, but rather we, we, we come to mourn the grief that we've caused God. A lot of times, honestly, in my own life, most of the time, in, in my initial coming back to the Lord, I was as scared <laughs> uh, I had, um, I had a series of panic attacks. Like, I thought I was dying. I thought I was having a heart attack. They were so severe. Where um, I, thought, I thought I was having a heart attack. I was like 19, 20 years old. And I thought my heart was stopping. And I got scared. I was like, I have lived like an idiot for the last two, three years. Um, I'm in a whole lot of trouble if, uh, if, if I were to die now. And so, my initial acts of repentance were just to get out of trouble, pure and simple. And yet, God, you know, he's okay with poor motives as long as we're moving in the right direction. He can change our motives as we go. And So, I start, I start out definitely just wanting to be out of trouble. And, and somebody once told me, you know, if, if you just go through all the different things that you've done, um, you know, you're, you're, you want to repent for everything, item by item, you know, and I, so I'm just every memory that I've gotten, but it was just, I just wanted to get out of trouble. I didn't want consequences for the things that I'd done, and so my initial repentance was just pure and simple for me. It was so I could get out of trouble, and so that I wouldn't have consequences for any stupid actions, which were numerous, um, but I hadn't yet considered that I had actually affected God, and that my actions had actually caused him grief or pain or sorrow and that was a very painful season when suddenly I was confronted with my crimes against God it wasn't about getting out of trouble anymore it wasn't about just my own consequences it was about I had offended uh, a God who loved me cared about me had given me life Uh, and he was what was amazing about it looking back was his gentleness in, in showing me. Um, <laughs> I, had a, I had what I thought was my testimony of what I had done growing up in a church and kind of wandering away. And I remember God just so gently showing me, no, you knew I loved you when you were young, but you didn't have the courage um, to stand by me when I was trying to stand by you. And it was so gentle but I realized like, whoa, I couldn't believe the grief that I'd, I'd inflicted upon God, you know He's just big God. You can't touch his heart, right? It wasn't the case, and it's not the case. And so repentance began um, for me to become about, God, I'm sorry for what I did to you." Um, it started out as "Get me out of trouble," and it changed and now it's, it's more out of uh, I'm, I'm so sorry for the pain I've caused you um, because that's truly what sin is it's, it's uh, separation from God it's our rebellion against God but it's also the, the pain and the grief and the sorrow that we cause him and so true repentance um, is when we finally get to the place where we're, we care that we've offended God and we want to apologize and make that right Um, true repentance another thing that it does it it rejects the thought that by living holy now I can somehow negate the wickedness in which I lived and I I, I made a good run at this for a while too Um, I remember imagining like wow if I could just leave for like two years get everything straightened out get my act together come back it'll negate all the stupidity that I participated in for all this time and so I worked really, really hard to try to, to show God that, hey, God, I'm good now. You know, I'm not the way that I used to be. And what I was actually just trying to do is earn his pleasure. And true repentance recognizes that we can't. We know mentally that we can't. It's by faith alone, right? Um, salvation is by faith alone. We, we can't earn this from God, and yet we so try. And yet repentance acknowledges that I don't have to try. I can just come and I can just say, God, I'm so sorry for the grief that I've caused you. Um, Repentance is the full acceptance of all of our guilt and then the broken cry to God for mercy. And what's amazing is we start to get good at repenting. And this is a gift and it's one of the reasons that David stayed close to God's heart through his whole life was he was really good at repenting. I used to think that repentance was something you did right when you came to Jesus and then it ended because you are you you know, you don't do that anymore. Um, we actually just get better and better and better at repenting as life goes on. And actually a reflection of that is usually how much better we get at apologizing to those around us when we wrong them. Um, but... A prayer of a repentant heart becomes, and it's very dangerous, but just think about if you're ready to, (laughs) and want to pray this. God, show me my sin and transgression that I might truly repent. So even here, we don't know the fullness to which we've sinned and transgressed against God. And we need him to show us just so that we can know how to repent. And when he does now we come to a full awareness that, oh God, I'm in desperate need of mercy. So our recognition for the need of mercy defeats a a second false doctrine, um, number two, that man isn't, there's a false doctrine out there now that man is not in trouble with God. God just loves him and wants to lead him to a better life. The latter is, in fact, true. God does love him and wants to lead him into a better life. But that man is dead in his sin without God. And he needs God just to be alive. When we recognize um, our need for mercy, we enter into true Christianity. And true true Christianity recognizes that without Christ, we are dead in our sin and the only way to be raised from that death and sin is to receive the mercy of God. Um, mercy is the forgiveness or the removal of a debt which you owe or a punishment which you deserve. That's mercy. And when we come to God and we're like, oh God, I've sinned against you, we know the wages of sin is death. So our, our appropriate punishment would be death. But his mercy removes that punishment from us. So that's mercy. So now we need mercy still today. His mercies are new every morning. We need mercy now today when we mess up because we go back to God and say, God, I've sinned against you again. I'm so sorry for the pain I've caused you. Will you forgive me? Give me mercy today. Um, And I'll get into the third false doctrine in a minute. Um, Actually... I'll do it now. There's a, there's a really damaging false doctrine right now that it, it's, it says that grace is what you need now when you sin. That that's why we have grace. There's books written about this, like hundreds of Christian books about what, the, the amazingness of grace, that when you mess up today, you just have grace, you have grace, you have grace. That's not what grace is really For, and that's not the true definition of grace. The true definition of mercy is what gets us out of trouble and gets us back right with God when we mess up and sin. Grace does not do that. Grace is the power of God which enables us not to need mercy. I got I got way way off course on my notes here, but um, let me just go back here. I had a good line of thought, so I'm just going to go back to them. I was just getting too excited. Okay, so mercy, uh, when we recognize we need mercy, we understand that our efforts are futile. I think most of us at some point made a pretty good effort as a Christian to be holy. We wanted to be righteous and act righteous. And usually that's, uh, that's valuable, but often our effort to be holy is for the sake of earning God's satisfaction, We probably wouldn't admit this because we know we can't, but usually that's what we're trying to do. Um, Often, I mean, I was one for a long time uh, as a young Christian trying to live radically. I wanted to be radical. I wanted to be the most radical, the most extreme. I wanted to do more for God, be more for God, be holier than anybody who since the Old Testament times of uh, you know, the Nazarites and uh, did the Nazarite fast, and yet um, my motives were to please God, to impress God, to um, not require his mercy. There were, a lot of, um, there were a lot of people in Scripture who had the same motives. They were zealous, but not for love. And often it may be unwitting, but it's for selfish gain most radical life you will ever see lives that way because it's entirely motivated by love. And what we find from scripture is that he who has been forgiven much loves much. So we often want to be radical to avoid needing to be forgiven. But in fact, it's Going to the place of being forgiven that will produce in us a love that will make us more radical than we ever could have been if we were never at the place of needing forgiveness to start. Zeal apart from love is momentary. It's only going to last a little while. But Forgiveness, which leads to love, endures. It goes on and on. Love never fails. So if we want to be more radical and we want to be better lovers of God and men, the first place to start, God, show me where I've sinned and transgressed against you that I might have mercy, be forgiven, and therefore become a better lover of you and man. It's really strange, you know. You'd never think that, Becoming more radical, more holy, more righteous would come through more time asking God for forgiveness. But that's the reality. And like me, uh, oftentimes we believe that if we live holy enough, it'll somehow make up for the stupidity in which we lived. And that's not true either. The greatest intentions and the best efforts of man lead to legalism and arrogance or brokenness and dependence. Because what happens is your efforts either lead you to believe that you're somehow succeeding and becoming pleasing to God when you're not, but you're lying to yourself, and so you you continue down this path until you've so developed uh, an isolated bubble of pride and arrogance that it's impenetrable, or it leads you to realize that all of your best efforts are failing again and again and again. Um, I remember going to an event. Um, in uh, early 2006, I think it was, and um, I thought I had lived so holy the year before. it was ridiculous. I mean, um, you know i don 't think I watched a movie that was worse than G. Uh, you know, if somebody swore around me i 'd throw water on them, and no i 'm just kidding um, but I was so holy i couldn 't even stand myself. And so I go to this conference and i 'm thinking like, okay. I'm ready, you know, God's gonna just pow, and it's gonna be amazing, and I went, and it was the most mundane, boring conference I'd ever been to, nothing happened, and I come home, and I was so frustrated with God, like, don't you know how holy I am, and um, I wasn't really saying that, but, you know, you're wrestling through some of these things internally, and I was sitting on my couch, in this basement apartment we lived in on College Avenue, and I wasn't reading and I wasn't praying because I had enough with the holiness because it didn't get me anywhere. And I was just sitting there. And no purpose, no nothing. And all of a sudden, I mean, as clear as anything in my heart, God just says, "Um, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works so that no one can boast. It was just like, boom. And I, I didn't memorize this verse, so it wasn't like, just kind of waiting to come out when it was just <laughs> dropped. And you know what my first reaction was? It wasn't, woo! It was, are you kidding me? What about the guy who never goes to church? What about the guy who shows up on Sundays only for Christmas and Easter, but he believes, what about him, Lord? Silence. And I'm just like, fine. And okay, you know. Um, and I, so eventually I obviously, I gave in. Um, and then it, sh- it really started to strike me that I have, I have labored for four years, essentially, to try to crack open the gates of heaven. I never would have verbalized this. You never could have convinced me that this is what I was doing. But once God said, It is by grace you are saved through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. No, not even you. And suddenly I was like, I don't have to do anything. I can't do anything. I don't have to do anything. And I remember coming in here the next Sunday, which was like two days later. And I remember standing up here, and I was supposed to be doing the, uh, the offertory. And when I was the offertory guy, giving was at an all-time low because I never talked about money. But I was standing up here, and I'm like, it's by faith alone. And everyone's looking at me like, he is so weird. Aren't you going to ask for money? And I'm like, you don't have to do anything. You can't. And I was so, it's, it just changed my life. But looking back, you realize I had so worked and labored to be pleasing to God, and yet it was all for naught. And I will assure you that my best efforts, however well-intentioned, had led me to a great deal of arrogance, and yes, legalism too. See, I, I wanted to live in a way that pleased God. I wanted to live a holy life, and I realized that This gospel that we have in Jesus, it's a gospel of righteousness, which means that we should live holy, and we are to bear the righteousness of Christ. It's not just a gospel of love, it's initially a gospel of righteousness. Knowing the gospel of righteousness will lead us into the gospel of love, but a gospel of love will often abandon the gospel of righteousness, and that's disastrous. When we come to this place, we understand that now we require the Spirit of God to enable us to live holy. All these efforts, all this labor, all this holy living, all the getting rid of the movies and the crazy things that we do, it will not allow us to actually live holy. And it definitely will not allow us to have the Holy Spirit come in and dwell with us. Nothing we do of our own accord can attain to the life that God expects of his children. Nothing. Attempting to do so without the Spirit allows us to see the disparity between our life and the holy life which is demonstrated in the Scriptures. Which leads us to the third false doctrine. And this is primarily... Uh, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes, we've been told that this is a standard which is unlivable to us, to which we can never attain, so that we remain in constant need of God's grace. So, the, the false doctrine would be me coming up here and saying, the Bible presents to you a standard that you can't attain to. You will never live it. You have to live in constant failure for the rest of your life on earth. But you get grace, so you don't have to feel bad about it. And that's not what's actually in the Bible. Because this wrongly defines the word grace. Grace is not that which allows us to remain in failure. Grace is that power of God which enables us to live in victory. In fact... The scriptures declare not an unlivable standard under which we must always fail. Rather, they declare the normal way of life in the kingdom that's expected for the child of God. So, the scriptures from the time where Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount through the book of Acts and the pastoral epistles and throughout the New Testament, they're actually telling us hey, guys, this is normal Christian life, this is the way you should live. The unlivable standard, I think, is actually a cop-out, and it's a destructive doctrine because it allows man to live without need of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean? If you're being told that you're going to be a failure your whole life, and that's the way it was supposed to be from the start, then you never believe that there's something more available for you. I don't need the Holy Spirit. I probably have the Holy Spirit. I'm just given the Holy Spirit, so I don't feel bad when I live at a substandard to this standard that God presents in Scripture. So I don't need the Holy Spirit. I think this false doctrine was engineered to eliminate the Holy Spirit from the church because it eliminates Christians' recognition of our need for God's presence. Are you stretching or do you have a question? Because we had open questions last week, so I was like, (laughs) that was was sneaky. She's got the armor on Char. Char didn't even know it. (laughs) So, if you don't think you're supposed to actually live according to the Scriptures, why would you ever try? Why would you ever think that you need anything else to allow you to do so? But, if you read the Scriptures and see that we are supposed to imitate Christ that the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are actually the normal Christian life, then we start asking God, why can't I do this? I remember in this season, right after God was like, you are saved by grace through faith, that I was faced with so much of my own inability to live at this standard. A lot of it was in regard to seeing people healed or actually having an effect on someone's life in ministry. I knew that I had this call to ministry, and so I wanted to see people change. I wanted to sit down and talk to someone and have their heart split open like you see in the book of Acts, and they say, I need this Jesus. And yet, my entire ministry experience was people just like, okay. It was like hitting a wall. I prayed for so many people for healing, and nothing happened. And I remember yelling at God, do you see how much I'm embarrassing you? I'm praying in your name and nothing happens. I'm an embarrassment to you. You better give me the power of the spirit because I will embarrass you my entire life. I was committed to embarrassing God if he didn't do anything. I remember crying out to him, Why can't I live like the men in the Bible? Why am I stuck living a life less holy? And I was confronted that, Well, son, it's because you don't have all of me. You lack my spirit, and my spirit enables you to live according to the scriptures. And so, right after we got married in Tennessee, I remember fasting, and, and during this time, God was asking me to do some really weird things. Um, I remember at one point, I was, um, I was fasting, and, and we lived in this residential neighborhood, but there was like a, I won't use any examples, but it was a, we lived in a cinder block, like single level cinder block apartment unit that was like eight units long. Our, our apartment was like 200 square feet. It was cinder block walls. This thing was awesome. You could not stand in front of the oven and open it because your legs would get smashed. The kitchen was only like two and a half. You had to turn sideways, open her up, shove the stuff in. It was, it was awesome. But anyway, residential neighborhood. All of our neighbors were Russians. I'm not going to tell you that story right now, but it was pretty funny, um, especially when the, the wrecking ball came down and crashed on one of our neighbor's trunks right through. Anyway. We're living in this neighborhood, and I'm fasting, and God goes, I want you to go out into that intersection, get down on your knees, and yell that Jesus Christ is Lord to the mountains. And I'm like, it's the middle of the day. This is a terrible idea. And honestly, it was not an act of courage. I just convinced myself that the Russians would never understand what I was saying and that most people were probably at work with real jobs, so I just went out and did it. Um. But what I realized later was God was taking away my desires to have his spirit that were there to make me look special. Because, like I said about motives earlier, a lot of us wanting the fullness of God is so that we can look better than others around us. We want it for our sake. We want it for our ego. We want it for our ministry. Um, There's a really funny old um, sermon about uh, this guy with, I can't do it, but he he tells a story about a man pulling up at a fill-in station. They called it it a gas station. you know. Hey, fill her up with the best stuff you got. Um, We often come to God for the fullness of the Holy Spirit because of what it will do for us. I want more power for my ministry. If I could do this, I'd be getting invites all across the country to come speak and heal people and da-da-da-da-da. And throughout this period, God began stripping away those desires for things out of me. And he did it through humiliation, largely, which was kind of amazing. Um, but again, in gentleness. So here we are, and we, we start to realize that there's a disparity between the Scriptures and the life that we live. And we start to say, God, I need something else from you. I can't believe that you, God, would show me how I'm supposed to live and then say, sorry, never going to happen. How that? There's no way we could say that's a good father. That'd be like a father on Christmas taking this big, amazing Christmas present, attaching it to his kid's waist with a belt and two sticks and saying, Here, it's two inches out of your reach. Get it open. And they spend the next six months running around trying to reach this thing. It's the rabbit with the carrot on the stick chasing. And we have been taught that this is the normal Christian life. You're going to spend your life chasing something you could never live and experience. That is not a good father that would do that. It's an abusive father. We don't have an abusive father. He shows us how we're supposed to live so that we'll come and ask him, God, Give me what I need to live how you want me and expect me to live. So now we understand we have a need for grace, and it's given by the Holy Spirit. So not only do we need mercy, which eliminates our punishment, now we need God's Spirit to give us grace so that we can live the way that He commands. You know, the Old Testament we couldn't even live up to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. We couldn't, even, we couldn't even live up to that. The New Covenant, God raises the bar on the standards for living and then says, but now you're going to do it. It's incredible. We, the old. Have you read the Ten Commandments? Seriously? Okay, no. But they're easy. Don't lie. Don't kill anybody. Um, you know, they're like bare minimum standards for society, and yet God's like, you couldn't even do it. You couldn't even do that. So then Jesus shows up and he's like, okay, you know those? We're going to make them way harder. It's not even don't kill anybody, but now if you get angry at someone, it's the same as though you killed them. And we're like, well, we couldn't do the old ones. You're not going to make us do the new ones. And he's like, gotcha. Because you're going to live the new. You're not going to have that kind of anger. You're not going to have that kind of lust. You're not going to have, and I'm going to give you the spirit that's going to allow you to do it. Our Father shows us how to live, and then he gives us the spirit that we might live as he calls us. False doctrine number four, this is really, 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 really really common. The Holy Spirit is given to you that you might fulfill your dreams. But the person upon whom the Spirit falls desires God's Spirit not for himself. Rather, that person wants God to get whatever he chooses out of their life. The Holy Spirit isn't given to us that we might fulfill our dreams. He's given to us that we might fulfill God's dreams of what a person wholly surrendered to him might do. And there's a huge difference. Because a lot of times, our dreams that we hope for when receiving the Holy Spirit, they have things that, like I said, they, they have so much ego attached to them. They have fame, they have recognition, they have glory, they have power, they have, and we call it evangelistic things like change the world, make a difference, influence, impact lives, all these nice things. But really, we want God to come and indwell us so that we can be something special. And I'll tell you, the longer I live, the more I find out that greatness looks a whole lot more like ordinary than any of us would like. Because the Holy Spirit, he comes and he lives in us and with us and allows us to live ordinary lives in an extraordinary way. He allows us to do the most ordinary things in extraordinary ways. He allows us not to lie. He allows us not to think things that we wish we never thought. He allows us to have a pure mind with pure motives. And he truly changes the way that we are. And yet, there's not always a stage attached to it. There's not always 100,000 Twitter followers attached to it. A lot of times, it seems really downright boring, and those are some of the greatest people that you'll ever meet from heaven's perspective. We're usually told, receive the Holy Spirit so you can do miracles. Receive the Holy Spirit that you might have power. Receive the Holy Spirit so you can be all you ever dreamed you could be. But the Bible says, receive the Holy Spirit so that God can get glory out of your life. Receive the Holy Spirit so that God can cause you to live like him, to love like him, to serve like him, to sacrifice like him, and even at times to suffer like him. The fabric of a dream that God gives a man is selflessness. If your dream is truly from God, it will be for the benefit of another. I went through Joseph's life here um, again in the last couple of weeks. And this time through, I was just really blindsided again. So um, I love Joseph's life. You know, I talked about it a little little while ago. But in the last week, I got another little thing out of it that I'd never seen before. It was amazing. Joseph, you know, he has these amazing dreams where he's going to be this most powerful guy, right? The sun, moon, and stars are going to bow down to him. Parents, his family. So he knows he's going to be a pretty big deal. And I'm picturing myself, and I'm like, yeah, oh yeah. And you've got some of these dreams, maybe, and you're like, I'm gonna be there someday. And Joseph goes through all this horrible stuff. He's in prison. You know, he's a slave, he's in Potiphar's house, he's in prison, and all of a sudden, boom, he's the second most powerful man in the world. And I've always looked at that as Joseph was being prepared for the glory and the pressure and the weightiness of his calling. And he had this 17-year preparation period so that he would be ready when he stepped out and was the second most powerful man in the world. But when I read Joseph's story in the Bible, and not just in my own head, he told a different story. Because when all of this comes to pass, And Joseph is standing there and his brothers come back to him. And they come before him. Joseph reveals himself. And you know what Joseph says? God sent me before you for your sake. So that your remnant might be preserved. And all of a sudden, I realized This whole thing was not about Joseph and Joseph coming into greatness and Joseph's preparation for his great calling. This was about Joseph being maneuvered to preserve a remnant that would be found in his brothers. Because do you know who Jesus came through? It wasn't Joseph. It was for the sake of Judah's line. It's crazy. <clears throat> it changes the way we look at our dreams when we realize that all the amazing things that we see in them are actually for the benefit of someone else. And somewhere along the line, Joseph got a glimpse. That this whole journey and this whole call and the greatness that he would live in at Pharaoh's right hand, the second most powerful man in all the world, was in fact to preserve the remnant of his brother. (laughs) Man. Quick reminder, this was one of the brothers that sold him into slavery. And he is okay, not only okay, but thankful and praising God that God would take him through this horrific course to preserve that brother's line. And obviously it culminated in the arrival of Jesus being of the tribe of Judah. The fifth false doctrine. I've been hanging out with my children again. Um, The fifth false doctrine When you receive the Holy Spirit, you are free. You are free in regard to sin. But often it's, we're free and we can do whatever we want with the newfound power, glory, wonder that we've been given. The person upon whom the Spirit falls knows that she is not her own. Rather, that she is ruled by the Lord Jesus that she belongs to another. You're never more a slave than the moment you come to belong to Christ. You've been purchased out of death and out of sin, and you belong entirely to him. However, your master is more good than you could have ever imagined possible. There's something odd in our minds that is yet to be renewed, and it's in need of renewing. And this, this, twistedness is the thought that as long as I belong to another, I have less than if I were my own. I'd be better off if I were my own and I were free to do whatever I want to do. As long as I belong to someone else, there's always better out there for me. And I don't know that there's anything more false in all the world. We have come to a God who allows us to call him Father, and whose goodness knows no bounds. Who's more generous than we could ever imagine, and who's more loving than we can usually tolerate. If you've never read A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, it's a short book, but it is amazing because it talks about the attributes of God, his goodness, his holiness, his love, and they never end. His goodness never ends. And his goodness toward us and for us never ends. Because there's a difference. Someone you know is good. And they're just so good. And you watch them and you go, Oh, they're so good. But it changes everything when you find out they're good for you and toward you. In that their infinite and eternal and never-ending goodness is connected to you and will benefit you throughout eternity. This is the one that we've been not obligated to call master, but privileged to call master. Who brings us in as slaves and then sits us down and says, no, you need to call me dad. The person upon whom the Spirit rests, doesn't make decisions for himself. He only does what he sees his Father doing. But this doesn't mean that we do nothing, because our God is at work, as we discussed early in the semester, and he has been at work. What it means is that we find his work and put ourselves to it. But we cannot find his work unless the Spirit that knows his mind lives within us. Only when we possess the Spirit of God, or better yet, He possesses us, can we know the work of God and put our hands to it. Throughout this entire thing here, these five doctrines, we find ourselves repeatedly confronted with our need for God. We need God to show us what we need to be forgiven of. We need God to show us, or we need God for mercy. Then we need God for grace. But we need God to first show us how we should be living and that we're not there and then we need his grace to live that way. The awesome, amazing part about the, the, the normal Christian life is that the strongest, most spirit-filled, radical lover of God is actually the most dependent, weak, and broken individual you can find. So Paul says. It's in my weakness that I am strong. If we want to live in the fullness and allow the fullness of God's Spirit to live in us and rest on us, it's going to come through our acknowledgement of how much we need God and our willingness to go and repeatedly depend upon God. Because when we depend upon God, He gets the opportunity to act. Most of us spend our lives never never getting to see God act because we never give him the chance. A dependent life on God gets to see God regularly act on their behalf because if he doesn't, they're going to collapse. I'm pretty sure that God really got a kick out of and appreciated that when I was like, I will embarrass you for the rest of my life. That's how he likes us to work, where that if, if he doesn't come through, It's not going to work. If he doesn't move on our behalf, nothing's going to happen. That's the life of the normal Christian. So I'm going to pray, and um, I'm just going to pray that for each of us, we would have a... um, She's already spirit-filled because there's no way anybody could do that without getting hurt otherwise. I'm convinced. Whose kid is that? (laughs) Control of your children, for heaven's sake. I'm going to pray for us collectively that we would refocus ourselves and say, God, I want you to position my heart right because I, I want all that you have And should you come, I want to be able to sustain this thing as long as you're willing. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you are willing to work with honest, real people. That you are not afraid of where we're at. That you aren't afraid of all of our best efforts and yet failure. You aren't afraid of our biggest messes, and you aren't afraid of our worst sin. The thing that we're most embarrassed of or ashamed of, Father, that you look at that and you say, bring it to me. Show it to me. Tell me about it. Because I want to heal the pain. Lord, thank you that you are unafraid of anything that we can come to you with. And yet you're standing with open arms saying, come to me, bring it. I'll make it go away. I will change you, I'll make you different. I'll let you belong to me, and I'll let you call me dad. God, change our hearts. Give us your spirit. That we might live the fullness of what you hope for. And that you might truly get glory out of our lives. Mostly, Lord, thank you that with your spirit we have access to walk with you and in, in communion with you and talk with you in your presence every day. Thank you for going with us. We love you. Amen. Amen.